Welcome along, people. This is the Stronger Medicine Podcast. My name is Julian Donovan, and today is episode number five. So what we're getting into today is the topic of type 2 diabetes, and more specifically, what we can do about that. The man that I've been speaking to about this is Professor Michael Lean. Prof Lean is the Chair of Human Nutrition at Glasgow University. He's also a medical consultant in the acute medical ward and with emergency receiving duties at the Royal Glasgow Infirmary. And he holds a number of other roles such as chairing the Food Standards Agency Advisory Committee on Research and as a non-executive director of the Health Education Board of Scotland. Uh, He's also a mountaineer and seems to very much like his coffee. So, why did I want to speak to Prof Lean? Well, he and Professor Roy Taylor of the University of Newcastle, they are both the principal investigators for a very fascinating study called the DIRECT trial. This stands for Diabetes Remission Clinical Trial. Now, looking at the stats, out of 12.5 million research outputs tracked by Altmetric, this research paper has been ranking at around 135. That says a lot about the impact that it's having. Why is it so unique? Well, it's the first of its kind to look at complete remission of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, as its primary outcome. And the bit that I was really excited about is the fact that this has used non-medication methods to achieve that. So how do we define remission? Well, HbA1c we take as sort of the three monthly average thereabouts of somebody's average blood sugar. So the criteria for remission was defined as around 6.5% in old money or 48 millimoles per litre in sort of the new speak. And that was the threshold to be below that and also to be off all diabetic medication. How did they achieve this? Well, They used a diet, a calorie-restricted diet of 820 calories a day for 12 weeks. After a year, 46% of those recruited into the trial were in remission. Of those who lost more than 15 kilograms, around 9 in 10 were in complete remission. So in this conversation, of course, we get into this and how was this achieved? What were the mechanisms And what can we do, either if we know somebody with diabetes or working with people with diabetes, to get some of the benefits from this kind of uh, research finding? Now, uh, Professor Lean is a very busy man, so he was very kind to let me grab him for around an hour whilst he was actually at work. And as you'll hear, we used a landline, but actually the quality is pretty good, I think, with all things considered. And he'd just finished a medical round uh, for that morning. So I really appreciate him giving me that time to catch up with him about all his work here. We talk about the growing rates of diabetes. Where have we gone wrong with this disease and its care? We clear up some of the murkiness on body weight, on diabetes related to this, BMI, insulin sensitivity, all these different things. We talk about low carbohydrate diets, calorie restriction, fasting, and all the potential variability of reliability out there for these sorts of approaches. And Mike has a very, very pragmatic message. So it's 
a difficult disease which demands a challenging treatment and this is what we get into so as always i would love to hear from you on my email julian at strongermedicine.com for any thoughts comments or questions i'd also ask if you can just leave a review if you find this episode enjoyable and without any further ado thank you very much for that long introduction i now bring you professor michael lean Oh, well, listen, thanks. Thanks a lot for taking the time out of your day to, to have a, a quick catch up. Really appreciate it. Has it been very busy, a very busy morning for you guys? Yeah, yeah, just average. Average, okay. You're on at the acute medicine ward then? Well, it's, it's medical receiving. Medical receiving, oh, okay. All oh, right then. So, yeah, I just, um, as I said previously, the reason I wanted to basically have a recorded conversation with you was just to hear a bit from your end the kinds of things that we can do better for our type 1 diabetic type 2 sorry diabetic Two, patients yeah. um and also what people who may be on the pathway towards that or indeed suffering from that might be able to do for themselves so would it be okay to just begin with the question yeah. <laughs> looking looking at type 2 diabetes as a whole it's been increasing year on year and the prevalence is going up and up so where do you think we've gone wrong with type 2 diabetes as a whole? Well, I think we've gone wrong in several ways. One is that we've kind of lumped it together with type 1 diabetes as diabetes and rather assume that the you know, the treatment is to reduce the blood glucose um, and we've set a sort of target uh, that um, blood glucose of 7 millimoles per liter it constitutes good management. And of course, um, it's better than eight or nine or something else, but it's not normal. And the other, perhaps this leads on to the, the greater um, problem, is that over the last 100 years, because insulin is not usually required, at least not early on, for type 2 diabetes, it has often been regarded as um, less important or less severe, and it was even called mild diabetes. Now, that terminology has got into our sort of folklore that, and it's become almost a sort of an expected part of growing old in some cultures, especially in South Asians that, um, you know, older people, perhaps above their forties will tend to get diabetes and it's a mark of, um, you know, of sort of seniority. And they haven't appreciated what a ghastly, painful, debilitating, disabling disease it is. And that, that is, that is all part of, um, and the change is all part of the epidemic. So, a hundred years ago, or even thirty or forty years ago, it was a pretty mild disease. Most people, when I started my career, the average age when type two diabetes was diagnosed was about seventy, and most people over seven or half of them over seventy really didn't it didn't interfere with their lives very much. Uh, and so, you know, taking a pill and coming back in a year's time for many of them was probably acceptable. It may, it may, you know, of course, some of them did have premature heart disease and strokes and things. Um, now that we look at it, we begin to recognize that they had a lot of other problems as well, brought on by uh, the, the disease process of diabetes. What has happened, though, over the last 30 or 40 years is that the age of onset has come down. Uh, and it's come down now to, I think I'm right in saying it's about 51 in the UK and a bit younger in the United States and much younger in um, some areas in the Middle East and, and uh, in, in South Asia. And the reason for that is that people are getting fatter younger. And this recognition that the disease is, 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 being, driven, is being driven by overweight and obesity, not by BMI 30, but by the disease process of getting fatter. 
And that disease process, of, uh, which we now define obesity as a disease process, not a BMI study, the disease process of obesity, getting fatter, um, will ultimately start to put your fat into organs where it does damage. Okay. Uh, these are the so-called ectopic sites. Mm. And you know, if you are putting on weight and putting on fat on your bottom or your hips or something like that, then that may uh, trip you up when your your joints won't enjoy it very much. Um, but it doesn't have a big metabolic effect. If you, on the other hand, over overstep your personal threshold, and we're talking about a personal fat threshold, fat storage threshold, you will then start putting that fat into your liver. And when you put it into your liver, it'll then go secondarily through um, excess. DLDL um, fat, fat export from the liver into other organs, importantly, including your pancreas mm. and importantly, including your heart and a few other tissues that we could go into in detail. But that, that pattern whereby the body starts putting fat into vital organs is really important because our organs then don't function. So the fatty liver does not function well. Now, heavens above, we've known that for quite a long time, but we had failed to understand that type 2 diabetes is being driven by the early stages of fat accumulation in the liver. And now that we've got very fancy MRI equipment and we can scan livers and do surface coil analyses um, and we can see in, into other tissues, we now see that in people who have type 2 diabetes have got excess fat in their livers and they've got excess fat in their pancreas and this kind of fired up um, well me in in Glasgow and my friend and colleague Roy Taylor in Newcastle um, we got together and said come on let's let's see if we can uh, alert the world to this and put it right and the simple way to you know to alert the world to what was becoming obvious to us was to get people to lose weight and see if we could get rid of that excess fat. And that's what we've done in the, the direct trial. It, it's, it's terribly non-rocket science. We, we took a, a, a quite large number of people, with quite ordinary people with type 2 diabetes, just the ordinary patients who you're likely to see in, in primary care, type 2 diabetes, and we said, right, uh, we believe strongly that this disease is driven by fat accumulation, the disease process of obesity, and that if we can get the weight off, the vital organs might start functioning again, and that is precisely what happened. So, you know, it, it kind of proves the proves the case that type two diabetes should not be. It is not primarily an endocrine disorder. It, it, it is a fat accumulation disease. Mm. It is part of obesity, which happens to affect an endocrine organ. But before it gets to the endocrine organ, it's it's gone through the liver, and it's already in many cases affecting the heart and and other tissues as well. So okay. we've, we've kind of changed the face of this disease and and in doing so um, pointed to the the very obvious thing that reducing blood glucose with 101 different drugs, actually over 400 licensed preparations worldwide to reduce blood glucose, all licensed, approved, trialed, um, and that, that obviously has some benefits and we're well aware of that. But if you want to get rid of the disease and, and avoid its complications, the only way you'll do that is by losing enough weight to get rid of the excess fat. Okay, so I, th I think just, and you've been quite explicit there about what the cause of type 2 diabetes is, but I know in my case, there's always been a bit of ambiguity about exactly how much lifestyle, genetics, environment, these sorts of things play a role in the development yeah. of type 2 diabetes. So one thing that I wanted to ask about was, uh, because a lot of this is pinned on the reduction in weight to reverse yeah. um, the diabetes. So for those people who have, for example, a normal 
weight or a normal BMI, and I know it's not necessarily BMI, but normal weights um, who have the diabetes, would you mind just explaining a bit about how that might be the case? Because I think people can become a bit uh, confused by that. Yes, quite right. So there are people who regard themselves as being of normal weight. And uh, unfortunately, there are people who, who have a body mass index uh, in the high 20s anyway. Uh, in 27, I've had many patients who've, who have um, protested that their weight is perfectly all right because it's 28 and BMI 28. And that is because, you know, that has become normal. The average in the UK, average adult BMI is now about 27, 28. Um, and that is a statistical average and, and normal in, in, in one use of the word normal, but it is absolutely not what our um, you know evolution and genetics mm. uh, have, uh, have 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 operated under. So um, the in, I mean, if you turn the clock back again to the sort of 100 years ago, very few people had a body mass index of 28 or 30, and those who did were either young rugby players and boxers and people like this who've got masses of muscle because the body mass index in young people is more driven by muscle or they were the rich and idle um, you know, the fat controllers um, who didn't have to work for a living and who were able to and, and exercise their, their greed. Now the, what has happened of course since then is that nobody, almost nobody now in the Western world has to work for a living. You, you, very few people have to work physically. We, we know that some I mean, postal workers do for a period until they um, manage to get promoted into sitting in a van or sitting in an office. Very few people now have to work physically um, in, in, at the level that, that was normal 100 years ago or thereabouts. And we've all, at least not most of us, not all, um, I correct that, many of us, and, and indeed most of us, have got appetites which will drive our weights up mm. if we don't have to exercise. So as a species, we have survived extinction in a variety of ways, in, in social ways, which are very clever, and, and, and that puts us ahead of a number of other species. But one of the big ways is that we can, um, and given half a chance we will, increase our body weight uh, it, to double its normal functional level. And that is what would take somebody with a body mass index of, let's say, a normal functional level for a wild human might be 18, 19, 20, up into the high 30s or 40. And a body mass index of 35 to 40 is now becoming, uh, I think the figure is the uh, is of the order of 5%, 5 to 8% of the population now uh, is up at that sort of level. Um, and, there are, and there are many people are heading in that direction. So if you go to older people, older age groups, that's becoming quite quite ordinary. Mm. Um, and you see, what, see what we're getting at here is is that um, the 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 level of obesity that we're seeing now uh, is much greater, and that means that it's got to a high level in younger people. And and our our genetics, and and you're right to point this out. Not everybody will get diabetes, and there are some who get their diabetes um, at a at an earlier age with a relatively low body mass index. Now, classically, that will happen in people of uh, Middle Eastern, Arab, and uh, South Asian extraction. So um, the the damage from fat accumulation starts to be apparent and the fat, and the fat um, storage in ectopic sites, the, the fatty livers, at much level, lower levels of body mass index than you'd see in in European people. And that's why we've, we've, we now internationally have set a lower 
safe limit for body mass index in, in South Asians uh, of, of you know, 25 corresponding to 27 in, in South, something like that. And so a body mass index of 23 in South Asians is, is the level at which action needs to be taken. Um, and, and unfortunately, that, that means most of the population. If you if now in, for example, in the Middle East, we're looking at um, uh, diabetes rates up to about 40% in some countries of adults. And of course, as they get older, that, that, that's becoming more and more apparent. And they have developed that disease often with a body mass index, which, which would be quite normal or even lower than average in the population, but it's too high for their physiology. So each of us has a sort of threshold um, of genetic and epigenetic origin, at which point we will start putting fat into internal organs. And that, that threshold, we unfortunately can't measure in advance. And even more difficult, we, we can't actually easily measure how much fat is in the liver um, it, it, it's a very complicated thing to measure and it can't be done at the bedside. You might get an indication from ultrasound measurements and, and increasingly there's, there's evidence that you, you can at least get a broad indication. So if people are overweight and the liver scan says it looks as if it could be a bit fatty, I wouldn't wait for any second confirmatory evidence to say, right, you must get your weight down. Type 2 diabetes is a very bad disease. It creeps up gradually. And if you're going to get it below the age of about 75 or 80, it's going to shorten your life substantially. Okay, so to be clear for the listeners then, it's it's apparent that there's a, a different degree of threshold across populations, across individuals, and insulin sensitivities um, are also different. Yeah, of onset. yeah that's right. And, and so, I mean, the, the, we haven't done a lot of research, but um, as, uh, there is certainly anecdotal evidence, and many of us have now had patients with a body mass index of 23, 20, even 22, who developed type 2 diabetes, mm. and you think, well, what's going on here? And sure enough, if they lose a bit of weight, because I mean, there are plenty of humans whose fighting weight, if you like, whose best weight for health uh, gives a body mass index of 20 or even 19. Um, that's not that's not the majority, but there are people like that. So um, the, the the great majority of people with type two diabetes will have. I'm talking now of European sort of white Europeans will have a body mass index above about 23. Um, it, it's it's pretty uncommon below that, and it's still uncommon with a body mass index below about 27. But you see that that's average for the entire population. Um, so so we're increasingly seeing people who perfectly reasonably saying, look, I'm not overweight. Well, why have I got type two diabetes? And the answer is, well, well yeah, they are over fat. They may not be overweight and and, and but they're over. They have too much fat, and they started putting their fat into in, into these sites. Now there, are, as you know, also there are there are factors which might lower that threshold. So people who have chronic disease of other kinds, whether it's chronic infection um, or, or other chronic diseases, may well then start putting their fat into the liver at an earlier stage. If you are on steroids, you will start mm. to develop these signs more, more at an earlier stage with less total body fat. You'll start um, you know, heading towards diabetes earlier on. So there are kind of signals out there and there, are, there clearly are factors which you know, which, which aggravate it. And there may be factors which, which slightly improve it. So people who are um, maybe very prone to diabetes, if they are more physically active and can be regularly, sustainably physically active, that may actually postpone when they start putting the fat into the, the livers. Now, we don't have terribly good evidence on that, but it, there is some suggestion from the data that that may be the case. So physical activity is likely to be protective um, you know, in terms of protecting the disease process, um, delaying the disease process, but it's not a big factor. So people who are overweight can't can't correct it by 
running around more. It, it, it won't take it all away. You may improve it a little bit. And, and there are other factors. So um, we, we know that uh, on big studies that people who have more fruit and vegetables, who have more um, uh, ascorbic acid and vitamin C in their diets, tend to have lower hemoglobin A1Cs. Now that is partly because um, antioxidants reduce your hemoglobin A1C, whatever it is, and that's a good thing. And partly because people who um, eat more fruit and vegetables may have a slightly delayed threshold for putting their fat into the liver. We don't have that evidence, but it's possible. Um, it may just be an association. The people who have more fruit and vegetables are probably doing lots of other good things in their lives um, and, and delay the onset of chronic disease. So these are all minor factors. The big one is becoming overweight. And, and, and we have to put out the message that you, you mustn't wait for a body mass index of 30 or, or to become noticeably overweight if you're at risk of diabetes. So then the family history becomes really important. You know, if, you, if, if, if your family, if your parents or grandparents have, have type 2 diabetes, then you, you are genetically going to be at high, much higher risk than, than average. And people who have family histories need to be alerted to this and they need to keep their, their weight down um, and to keep a check on it. Similarly, if, I mean, obviously women who've had gestational diabetes may then lose their diabetes after, um, after the end of pregnancy, but they remain at very high risk because genetically the, the, the stress of pregnancy has, has pushed them into diabetes. And then as age goes by and if they put on any weight, that will, will um, bring it on relatively early in their cases. And I think what we must be aiming to do is to catch people as early as possible. And that's really important because in the best of all possible worlds, our, our fellow humans are very resistant to, to changing lifestyles, normal, what they regard as normal lifestyles, if they haven't got a strong trigger. Developing diabetes is a very strong trigger. I mean, or it should be, if, if it's well handled and well, if, if the message is, is very clear, this is a very serious disease and, and we need a serious answer to a serious disease. Um, so I, th I think we need to catch them early. In terms of prevention, I think we're still a very, very long way away from this, but we can we can rack up the 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 action needed now because uh, which we know is going to be effective. So keeping the weight down, losing weight if you're overweight, we know to be effective in reducing that that risk of liver fat accumulation, improving the way the pancreas works, improving the way the liver works, and and we can perfectly safely recommend that for people at high risk who are beginning to be overweight, even if they haven't yet developed diabetes. And along those lines, people are now increasingly testing for and finding pre-diabetes, which uh, there's a big argument as to whether that's a sensible uh, cutoff or whether, mm. you know, we should, how, how we should, but this is a, um, people who have a raised hemoglobin A1C, but not yet in the diabetic range. And they are firstly more likely to go on and get diabetes unless they are able to reduce their weight and, and in, in the sensible way. And secondly, we know they're already at high, higher risk of heart disease. Yeah. So there's a sort of double whammy there. So I think you've already perhaps answered this question, but people who are listening may be thinking, okay, I've got type 2 diabetes and perhaps I've tried diet controlled methods. Now I've been suggested by my GP or whoever to start metformin. Is as long as the blood sugars are controlled, why should they be too concerned about any more of this if they can keep their blood sugars within normal range of by using more medications such as insulin and glycolazide and things like this? Yeah, okay. Um, very good question. And um, interestingly, I, I did a walk around this morning and saw a patient who was in exactly that category, somebody who was diagnosed diabetic, overweight, relatively elderly, 
um, put on metformin, hemoglobin A1c now 41 millimoles per so outside the range, just outside the range of, of diabetes. Um, has she completely corrected all the risks which, which um, her diagnosis of diabetes would bring? And the answer is we, we know she's improved them for, for, for definite. Um, so an improvement of hemoglobin A1c um, of any kind will reduce risk of, of microvascular disease. Has she taken them away completely? I, I can't say that for certain. There's, a, there's obviously a legacy effect. The number of years in which she, she had diabetes before it was treated may play a part there. Would it be equally good to take the pills, get the hemoglobin A1C down to non-diabetic range or into the, the uh, even out of pre-diabetes range? Um, is it equally good to do that with pills or with weight loss? And I can't answer that. We don't have the, the evidence. Um, nobody has got those data yet. And we are beginning to look for them. Um, and there are, there are one or two databases where it is possible to identify people who have corrected their hemoglobin A1C completely uh, by medication and others who've done it by weight loss and diet. And we're, we're just beginning to be able to look at their long-term outcomes. And, and we're thinking particularly of the Sky Diabetes uh, database in Scotland, where everybody in the entire country is on a single database, everybody with diabetes. And we can see what they did with their weight and what has been done with their medication. And, and we're just beginning to, to, to be able to look at that. It's, it's relatively early days because, as I say, people are now developing diabetes quite young. So they aren't, most of them are not, um, fortunately dying in, in the, in, in the first few years of their diabetes. And we have to wait a good number of years before we see what the sort of final outcomes are going to be. For my money, um, if, and if I'm advising somebody who has developed diabetes, who's overweight and clearly has type 2 diabetes or over fat, even if they're not greatly overweight, my strongest recommendation is a, they should take away the disease process that is driving this. Uh, and that means losing weight uh, because as we, we now sort of identify type 2 diabetes as part of obesity, part of the disease process of fat accumulation. If they are not able to correct it uh, and get their uh, hemoglobin A1C down into a non-diabetic range, then um, you know we, we we do our level best, and we've got some quite good dietary means now. We've we've been using the Counterweight Plus program in Scotland. We know that people can do many people can do it under their own steam, and uh, we've we've put up a, a, a diet program on our on, on our website, which gives some very simple Scottish advice that lots of people are able to follow. If they aren't able to do it, then um, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's even next best, but the, the next step would be then to say, well, we then need to add in medication to, to try and improve matters. We then say, well, what is logically the best medication that will do that? And the best medication, one would say, would be one which is going to help you to lose weight uh, to get, you know, get on top of that disease process and one which matches your insulin um, delivery from the pancreas to your insulin requirement. Um, and that is not what a sulfonylurea does. So glycoside just doesn't do that. In the glycoside and sulfonylureas crank up insulin secretion from the pancreas the whole time and cause weight gain. So that, that isn't, isn't really the answer. It will reduce blood glucose, but the, but the trade-off is that it kind of um, accentuates the disease process behind the disease. So in, that, that, that is probably not, not the favored way now. Metformin... Uh, does bring a small weight loss, usually of the order of to a couple of kilograms. So it's not a, a potent way of helping people lose weight, but it does improve the way in which insulin works. Um, and, and I think it, and it also improves lipids. So in, in general, that, that is a, a very sensible way. It's also cheap and uh, provided it's tolerated, and the people who can't tolerate it, but provided it's tolerated, that's the next step. 
the logic would say, though, that of the medications we've got available, the GLP-1 agonists are, are, are head and shoulders above any other mechanism because they have several modes of action, um, one of which is to um, match the insulin secretion from the pancreas and beta cells according to need by, by the intermediary effect of the GLP-1 hormone or, or the agonist. Um, and, and so that way it will increase insulin at the right times, but not all the time. And that it also has this quite, quite remarkable effect uh, up in the, in the level of the hypothalamus, uh, which um, mimics the effect of, of the normal hormones after eating, which tell you to stop eating. Uh, it's, it's the end of a meal. I don't need to eat anymore. And with provided people are having good, really good dietary advice and they're making a big effort, they're able to lose really quite large amounts of weight. Um, and in fact, more than we see in the in the randomized controlled trials, um, where, where very often people in randomized controlled trials, have, uh, you know, many of them are sort of professional patients who've lost weight and then they're asked to lose weight again, and they don't do it so well the second time round. So in real life, the GLP-1, the GLP-1 agonists, and, and the one which is, is currently licensed is liraglutide, and I'm, we're hoping that semaglutide, which is even more potent, will soon become available. They are the most logical treatments for the management of type 2 diabetes if we can't get on top of it by weight loss alone. Okay, so I'd like to contrast everything you've run through there, all of the different options, the different mechanisms that you've been through, to the elegant simplicity of the work that yourself and Professor Roy Taylor have done with the direct uh, research trial. And Mm -hmm. that was an incredibly fascinating study because it was uniquely looking at outcomes for remission of type 2 diabetes through calorie restriction so i I understand it was almost half of people who went who were recruited into this managed to go into remission would you be able to tell us about how the findings of this um, work that yourselves have done have changed our understanding of type 2 diabetes and its subsequent management yeah. So the the type, the direct trial was was a, a brave piece of non-rocket science. Uh, it's the first trial ever to have um, attempted to get remissions of diabetes. Um, and we're using the word remission carefully here. It, we're not claiming, nobody would claim that this is a cure. We know that people who get type 2 diabetes have got a low threshold, if you like, or that their genetics and their epigenetics will make them at risk if they're under, you know, if they, if they regain weight or if uh, they have uh, prolonged stress and so on. So remission of diabetes. So this is the first trial ever to try to achieve this. It set out to do it using a diet program which is already available, um, certainly across Scotland and in many other places, which was developed for use in, uh, specifically in uh, healthcare uh, settings. So it was designed to be used in primary care, um, by and delivered by an ordinary nurse or an ordinary dietitian if there's one available um, using a, with a supported program with, with highly trained experts and this is something we've been working on for about 10 years and we know that um, it will reliably get people to lose 10 or 15 kilograms uh, and, and in many cases you know if they're, they're, they're working hard at it more than that it uses a, a formula diet to achieve the weight loss and then says well we you know weight loss and weight maintenance are not the same thing and they need slightly different approaches so then a structured program um, based on food of course for weight loss maintenance but with the use of meal replacement and indeed rescue plans or relapse management if needed. So this is a quite a sophisticated 
program worked out with a very strong evidence base and, and that's arguably the best evidence um, weight management program in, in the world. And we set out to use this in primary care so our patients in direct didn't come into hospital for, for the weight management. They were seen by their ordinary nurse in their ordinary practice and we recruited about 300. Uh, amongst them there was a, a batch, a smaller number, uh, in Tyneside who went in and had the metabolic tests which essentially showed that if you lose the fat of the order of 15 kilograms, you will uh, lose the fat in your pancreas and your liver, and these organs will start to function again. And the upshot of the trial was, as you say, that very nearly half of all our patients were in remission at one year. In fact, it would have been half if, if some of the ones who, who, who um, jumped the gun at the very beginning, they, some people were so keen to do it, they lost weight and, and got rid of their diabetes before we could get them in. So uh, it was about half anyway. Uh, 86% of those who, who we, we had in were in remission. That's uh, in, um, nine out of 10 if they lost 15 kilograms. And I think that for me, that's almost an more important result. It proves that in 90% of, or 86% of cases, this disease is reversible by weight loss. Um, and then it depends on whether you can achieve the weight loss. Now, using this specific program, about half of them were able to get the weight loss, half of them could get out of diabetes at the end of a year. And the program then moves into weight maintenance. And we know, we know from every study that's ever been done that losing weight is the relatively easy part. Um, we need to get better at it. We need to help more people to achieve it. But still, it is still easier than maintaining the weight loss when people return to the real world, to their families, to their jobs, to the environment that's actually brought on the weight gain in the first place. So over the second year, there was a, a regaining weight of about um, uh, just under three kilos. So, um, which is, you know, obviously sad and disappointing. We're making efforts to try to avoid that. The relapse management, you know, offering people a short period on a, on a total diet replacement obviously was helpful that so that's a step we can we can recommend to others uh, the structured support program is clearly helpful and we're going we've got a lot of analyses now to see what what other aspects are helpful um you know for, for use in in routine practice but the the big push now needs to be to help people maintain their weight loss in the long term people who got their weight loss and got remission and maintained the weight loss maintained it at two years and and the the relapses the people who became once again diabetic after two years were those who put on a bit of weight and it, they didn't have to put on a lot of weight and there seemed to be a threshold. The threshold is somewhere between 10 and 15 kilos. People who lose 15 kilos are, are pretty much in the, are pretty safe. If you've lost 10 kilograms, you're likely to be safe but but uh, for my money, I would always aim for the, the, the 15. And there probably are individuals, um, we, we identified one or two, who had huge improvements with 15 kilos weight loss, but didn't quite get a remission. So there are probably people out there who need to lose a bit more than that. And I think this is the message that we, we have been a bit mamby-pamby saying that um, weight management is all about losing what you can lose and it'll improve you know, a modest weight loss will get you some benefit. If you actually want to get on top of this, get shot of your diabetes, uh, off the medication and indeed off your blood pressure medication if possible, then you're needing to be aiming for 15 kilograms, two, over two stones in weight loss uh, and to keep that off long term. Some people may need more. Uh, can I just fill up, follow up a question earlier about the people who didn't didn't get remission? There were some people, and it was very small numbers, about you know four or five out of the the 150 who who slogged through, who lost 15 kilos and didn't manage to get remission. Some of them had huge improvements, and we think uh, they, they, for those individuals, they just needed to lose a bit more weight. Uh, 
and possibly they'd had diabetes a bit longer undiagnosed or something like that. There were, however, one or two who uh, lost weight and really saw no improvement in their diabetes at all. And I'm talking one or two out of, out of 150 or thereabouts. And these were individuals when we went back and did a more detailed history, and we were able to identify that some of them had histories of chronic abdominal pain lasting a period of time. Some of them actually had admissions for abdominal pain, and in one case, or two, was it, clearly had diagnosed um, pancreatitis. Uh, one of which was alcoholic in origin. We hadn't, you know, it was so many years ago that it had been forgotten about. And I think there's an important message there that some people are being, I should say, misclassified or misdiagnosed as type 2 diabetes who actually have pancreatic damage dating from previous, even long previous pancreatitis and alcohol exposure earlier in life. And we may be seeing a bit more of that because more people are taking more alcohol at younger ages. Okay. That's another thing to worry about. Just before I go on, could I just check how you're doing for time? Um, I, yeah, I'm happy to finish any time. Okay, um, maybe a, a couple more questions if that's okay? Yep. Thanks. Okay, so um, one of the parts of that trial which I found quite interesting was the fact that 820 calories would have a similar or sort of analogous effect to a much more restrictive 400 calories or so, but you would be um, basically enabling greater adherence because obviously it's a bit better to eat a little bit more. But with well, Hank, let me let me correct you on that. Is that a bit wrong? Yeah, well, slightly because the the adherence um, meant that people were able to stick with with what we were prescribing. Uh, and not take a lot of extra stuff. The people who are prescribed, this is not us, but other people have used um, a 400 or 450 calorie, very low calorie diets, and they got the same weight loss because the patients are cheating. They, they really couldn't stick on it. Oh, okay. Beg your pardon. So that was what it was all about. Yeah. It wasn't okay. it was nothing very sophisticated there. It was, it was simply that, um, you know, it, it's a bit silly to be pushing people to try and eat 450 calories off, or even 600 because we know they're going to cheat more. It's better to be a bit more realistic and a bit more honest and it also allows us to be allows our patients to be a bit more honest because if they're cheating they don't like to admit to that very often and they don't find it so necessary to cheat if they're having 820 okay that's how i went oh thanks for clarifying that now i'm sure you've probably been asked multiple questions about this particular thing but looking at places like diabetes.co.uk um and other areas within the diabetic community and field there are a lot of movements around low carbohydrate fasting um, calorie restriction. Do you have any particular uh, take on these various approaches? Um, are they all doing sort of the same thing, or are some of them suboptimal, whilst others might be better? It's, it's a, this is a huge area um, of, of concern, and um, there is a, a commercially driven movement aiming to sell low ca- low carbohydrate diets, and there's groups of people going around the country and the world being paid large amounts of money to lecture about low-carb diets become fashionable and it gets on YouTube and it gets on television. Um, so we're well aware of that. And the the website you mentioned, diabetes.co.uk, is a commercial website selling products um, and selling the beliefs of these people. That is very different from uh, the academic and charity website, diabetes.org, um, UK, which, which and, and it's important to look at the ends of these websites. .org means it's a charity, and so the diabetes.org is Diabetes UK is an evidence-based patient professional charity, very different from 
from a commercial organization. The evidence on this, um, so that you can go back to the um, many, many, many studies have been done looking at low-carb diets to see whether you get better responses. Now, if you cut out carbohydrate completely today, then your blood glucose will take a little tiny quick step down. Um, and so the, the, there is a very short-term um, advantage, if you like, if that is an advantage, but it doesn't deal with the, the long-term problem. In terms of weight management, in terms of diabetes control, in terms of blood pressure control and lipid control, there is essentially no difference between weight loss achieved by a low-carb diet or a high-carb diet. And there are other people who are recommending really high carbohydrate diets for diabetes control. And some of the original studies which, which started all this off were done by Professor Jim Mann in Oxford in the 1980s and, and two of his colleagues, both called Simpson, which is confusing. And they did studies with 70% of carbohydrate, enormous amounts of carbohydrate, and they got tremendous improvements in diabetes, blood pressure, lipids, and everything. And what was going on there when we unraveled it all was uh, the fact that they were using diets which are very high in carbohydrate, but it was carbohydrate coming from whole grains and from pulses, from uh, beans and lentils. And as long as a very traditional style of eating, and of course traditional diets worldwide have been protective against diabetes um, because they tend to be high in fiber, high in, high in uh, pulses. And so the, uh, the, the, the low-carb type approach has cut them out altogether in a, in a slightly artificial way. And the difficulty is that neither a very low-carb diet nor a very high-carb diet is actually sustainable long-term patients you know, aren't able to do it forever and ever. Um, the low-carb diets have been compared to sort of ordinary carb diets, um, which is what we used in direct. We used a 50% carbohydrate, just very similar to the ordinary um, UK style or European style of diet, about half of the calories coming from carbohydrate, so not very high and certainly not very low. Um, they've been compared in a variety of ways. We, we have uh, carried out a, a small study which looked at um, vitamin and, and mineral sufficiency and, and clearly some people who go on to low carb diets especially if they do extreme low carb diets can run out um, short of some essential vitamins and we've seen some serious uh, medical consequences of thiamine vitamin B1 deficiency um, which can cause permanent brain damage so and the and the, the studies which have reported on this say that the, the low carb diets especially the extreme low carb diets are at risk of doing this, so you have to sort of take extra vitamin pills. Um, and at the moment, our recommendation is that um, it, it isn't going to, there is no benefit, net benefit from a high carb or a low carb diet. Both are compatible with improvements provided they get the weight loss. And so within the direct, for example, we aimed on average at a, a carbohydrate intake, which is similar to the UK, about half the calories from carbohydrate. But there were individuals who said they felt they would, they would like to cut down the carbohydrate a bit more. And we were flexible and allowed them to do that. So we don't have very strong feelings, but we certainly don't recommend it. Now, and, and that, that is the current position. We're currently, as, as I'm a good scientist, I'm still looking for any possible benefit that, which might accrue from a low-carb diet. And there's little shreds of interesting theory here, and it, it often it goes back down to theory, which say that, well, if you're if you're on a low, a high, sorry, a high carbohydrate diet and you're putting on weight, then you're going to be converting some of that carbohydrate into fat in the body, and that fat, because of the way our bodies work, will tend to make more palmitate, the the um, one of the long chain saturated fatty acids, mm. which may be particularly problematic for the beta cell. We know that the long chain fatty acids are 
bad for heart disease and bad for the beta cell. Um, and that's a different different area of discussion. I think it's important to, in the same breath to say that the short-chain saturated fatty acids you get from dairy products uh, are, are, are not hazardous. So um, you know, the advice which said saturated fats are bad um, has been criticized quite rightly because not all saturated fats are bad, but the long ones certainly are. And it, it does. there's a theory, and it hasn't yet been proven, but it's a theory that uh, if you're going to gain weight, you should not do it on a high-carbohydrate diet because you'll end up making more palmitate. So there are little tiny side issues here, but the big story, the main story, is there is no difference in, in, in between a high-carb and a low-carb diet overall. If individuals find they're able to adhere better to a high-carb or to a low-carb diet uh, than a, a middling one, then we are f flexible about that, but aware of the fact that on very low-carb diets, there may be shortages of one or two micronutrients, which which are not so good, and that's partly mainly because they're cutting out cereals. So, the, the people on sort of gluten avoidance are also at risk of running out of, of B vitamins. Um, gluten is a normal part of human diets, and it's a very small number of individuals who are actually, you know, allergic to it with with celiac disease, and they they do need to take care of micronutrients, and they do. They're sensible about it. Okay, so. Do correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the sort of key message I'm receiving is that regardless of the approach that you take, as long as you are reducing your net intake of um, energy or calories with the aim to lose weight, then that will essentially achieve what we're hoping to do, which is improvement or remission of diabetes. Um, exactly. Okay. And with that in mind, is there, if it's a, a strict law of thermodynamics, is there anything, any such thing as a healthy or an unhealthy food? Um. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean no, of course not. That, I mean the health, your health spins out of your diet, if you'll excuse the word. So the 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 balance of all your food choices and and the word choice may be wrong in some cases. People choices are often limited by what's available, and of course that industry commands what's available nowadays. And many many people, you know, get what's on show on the supermarket shelves and or what they can afford. And and so the word choice is benefit. Anyway, your, your, your the foods the the foods that you eat over a period of time um, do define how your health will spin out. In amongst that, there are clearly some foods which are jolly hard to accommodate. And one of the ways we've looked at this is to say, look, if you really want to get it, get a balance right, and our dietary recommendations, uh, newspapers and journalists keep making a monkey of it, they haven't changed in 50 years because they are right. You know, they, we, we know what, we'll, what human beings need to eat. Um, and, it, you know, the, the, the best balance of nutrients is out there. We know the um, recommended levels of, of um, vitamins and minerals which are needed and we're pretty confident about the amount of fat, carbohydrate, saturated fat provided you don't simplify it too much and this is where, where a lot of recent debates have been but if you if you do that then most feed, foods can be accommodated but the summer jolly, I mean the sausage roll <laughs> the classic sausage roll <laughs> is very very hard to accommodate into any kind of healthy balanced nutritionally complete diet it, it just doesn't work so you know nobody will die if they eat a sausage roll you won't die if you eat two or three but if you're having that sort of thing regularly then you're going to be pushing other foods out of your diet or putting on weight or both um, and so there are, and I picked on sausage rolls because they're easy ice cream is another example which um, you know it, it and it's ubiquitous and and you know ice cream is a classic example where you take fat um, and you take which has nine calories per gram, and you take sugar, which has four calories per gram, and you mix it together, and you put it into people's mouths. Now that is a you know the kind of thing which traditionally didn't happen 
um, you know, our, our ancestral forebears did not have ice cream. They did not have pure fat and pure sugar with no other nutrients in sight. And this is the kind of food which, uh, sadly, perhaps because many people like ice cream, um, is is not compatible with normal and with a, with a healthful, balanced diet. We use the word healthful rather than healthy diet. Um, mm-hmm. The diet itself, but it can be healthful, and it's sort of the connotation that it's actually giving health. So, a diet which contains sausage rolls and ice cream is not going to generate health. Similarly, one which is has loads and loads of you know, fizzy drinks and sugar and things isn't isn't going to be ultimately is, is going to crowd out the other nutrients and 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 ultimately do damage. Although one would have to say again, again repeating myself slightly, that this isn't the sugar that's the problem. It's the um, you know people who eat a lot of sugar or, or, or and sugar itself does not cause weight gain or diabetes, but um, sugary drinks are, tend to promote it, and the reason for that is that if you have very very sweet drinks, whether it's sugar or not sugar, that tends to promote selection of highly sweet sugary foods from other sources which put on the calories and make things worse i see oh thanks very much for that um distinction there so i'm aware of your time and just sort of pulling into the station with this conversation one of the (laughs) questions that i had was i understand the counterweight plus program is ideal because it's it's takes into account contraindications and it's got a, um, a maintenance and a, a remission um, aspects to it. It's, it's very detailed. But for those, uh, perhaps clinicians or even people who are working with um, the general population with regards to their health, is there anything that they can do from a very basic bare bones level, um, whether it's something like using fasting or just, just any other means that you could recommend which could capture the essence of what you've achieved with this direct trial yeah i mean fasting be very careful about fasting the word fasting means different things to different people um there, there are classic sort of religious fasts where people simply choose a number of hours in the day and say i will not eat when you know the sun is up or between the hours of x and y um that limits the time when you can eat it does to some extent limit the amount of food that you can get in on the other hand, we're quite clever now and, and uh, our marketing methods are pretty good at putting in extra food. So uh, weight gain during Ramadan is actually quite a big problem uh, for most countries. If, if you live in Alaska or somewhere up in the far north, then you, you, your hours become very limited. But um, so fasting of that kind is 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 um, an interesting maneuver. And it's a, it's a discipline which if you're wanting to lose weight, then almost any discipline, limiting the size of meals, limiting the frequency of meals, limiting uh, the choices of foods, all these, anything which limits your your uh, foods will contribute to lose weight if you're trying to lose weight. So that's sort of in very general a good thing. Fasting, I mean, in terms of absolute fasting, eating no food well, will ultimately kill you. And classically, it's 40 days and 40 nights. And interestingly, that that is precisely what happened in the case of the uh, Irish hunger strikers in, during the troubles: 40 days and 40 nights, plus mm. or minus, not much. So that really does happen. And I have admitted to the Royal Infirmary in, in Glasgow uh, recently one young man who decided he would do this and he went on a on a on a complete carbohydrate it wasn't total fasting but he cut out all carbohydrate and a lot of other things lost 30 kilograms and everybody's saying gosh how well you've done and very nearly died of beriberi he he was profoundly deficient in a range of vitamins including thiamine um, and we were luckily uh, we were able to nip in and treat it uh, but he would otherwise have uh, he could have died he had heart failure 
um, a gross heart failure and neurological sign. He he might have died. He might have ended up with brain, permanent brain damage. Luckily, he turned up in the Royal Infirmary. We were able to sort him out. But that is happening. Um, so extreme di- starvation is, is not a good thing. Um, what can you do if you're not going to do these extremes? Well, we put up a, a, a program a food-based program which costs nothing um, on the Diabetes Remission Clinical Trial website. So that's Diabetes Clinical... I can't do it. Diabetes Clinical... Diabetes Remission Clinical Trial. I'll get that right. <laughs> Diabetes Remission Clinical Trial .org.uk and the org tells you it's charity because it's one up on the university site. And we put up something called the No Doubts Diet. And this is not yet evidence-based, but what we did was to design a diet using wonderful Scottish foods which would give you about the 820 calories, perhaps a little bit more, um, the broad range of vitamins and minerals um, and would allow people to follow that program in the same way as you would a total diet replacement. And we're using this term total diet replacement now quite widely to mean this is a serious disease. It needs a serious treatment. We need a period of time which might be six weeks or eight weeks or 10 or 12 weeks when you're not going to have a normal diet. You're going to do a total diet replacement. You can either use a formula diet out of a packet, which which doesn't taste great. You don't come back for second helpings, but it's got all the vitamins and minerals there. And we've used that in the Counterweight Plus direct intervention or you can do it with very simple foods um, and we ask people to use porridge in the morning because they're Scottish and a piece of fruit and then we ask them to have a lentil soup and in a, a midday or lunchtime and another lentil soup in the evening and the lentil soups are designed with the right quantities and the right um, nice ad- vegetables and things that it's made from such that you're getting your spread of vitamins and minerals and and the, the the only risk with that is that people like it so much that they would have a second helping so the the quantities are, are are really very important but it gives you something very very similar to this total diet replacement and that period and i think it's this total commitment to saying right i'm going to get rid of this diabetes it'll may take me six eight ten twelve weeks but during that time i'm not going to eat with my family i'm not going to eat with my friends i'm not going to go to the pub i'm not going to have a glass of wine this is a serious treatment if type 2 diabetes were a cancer and it was called a cancer uh, diabetoma let's say and we said um well you can either um take something to cover it up, a pill called metformin or something guide, or you can uh, take a treatment which will give you a remission. Uh, which would you like? And I know which people would like to get a remission from a cancer they, <laughs> rather than just covering it up. I think there's no doubt. Type 2 diabetes, uh, the 10-year survival, is worse than many cancers. A lymphoma, for example, you're better off having a lymphoma than type 2 diabetes. Uh, but given the chance of a remission, um, we we are still some steps away from persuading people that type 2 diabetes is a really serious disease, worse than many cancers, and you need to do this total diet replacement, get your weight down. You won't enjoy it. Uh, this is not easy. Um, it's not it's not um, impossibly difficult. Everybody can do it, and many of them are already doing it, and it's a matter of helping more to do it. So the, the No Doubts diet that we stuck up on there uh, is something which many people can follow, and many people have done very successfully. Um, there are others. The Newcastle uh, university website has a, a, a different approach, which uh, is very similar in what is a cheese, but it's just using different language. Um, and of course, there are many commercial programs out there, all making claims, but without the evidence. So if you want the evidence, you go to the Counterweight Plus program used in direct, and, and there will be others, I'm sure, in time who will come up with the evidence, but that is the only one that actually has the evidence. You can then, if you, if you want to do something um, else, there are cheaper versions, um, 
and uh, without the evidence, but may work for you. Uh, and then there are absolutely free food-based versions like the No Doubts Diet, which we, we know will give you the same outcome if you can do it. We just haven't got the evidence of how many people can do it. That's fantastic. Thanks for that pragmatic and um, a ch- uh, sort of practical approach that we can we can look into. That's great. Professor Lean, I'm really thankful for you taking the time out of a busy clinical day on a Sunday of all days as well. Um, so uh, before, before I wrap this up, is there anywhere that you would like to sort of point people towards? I know you've mentioned um, already where they can look to for the diet advice. Is there any any, um, I don't know if you're on social media or anything like that, but uh, anything at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I suppose I, I would say yes. The, 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 have a look at the the. You can Google up the No Doubts Diet, uh, and you can have a look at the Newcastle uh, website and university website. Um, I would caution people against using commercial websites like Diabetes.co.uk. There's a lot of good sense on that website, which is which is um, one of the the clever things about it. They've put lots of good sense in there, but it is parcel up in a way which is trying to promote. Uh, a diet approach, which is, which is, I think, not ideal. Um, and, um, well, I think sooner or later, I, I've been promoting for some time that, you know, every year in November, we have World Diabetes Day, mm. and we all parade around mm. celebrating diabetes. What a terrible thing to do. I want to be out there celebrating no diabetes, and uh, in, there are now increasing numbers of people out there who have got on top of it, who no longer have diabetes, and who would be like, like to celebrate the fact that they don't. So I think we should be uh, perhaps setting up a social media group for uh, no diabetes and have no diabetes day tacked on. Perhaps Diabetes UK would be happy to to, to attack it onto its own event. There you go. That's my suggestion. I like that. I'll I'll look into that definitely. Well, listen. Thanks again, and um, I will I'll make sure to to let you know when this episode is up. But I really appreciate your time once again. Yeah. Thank, thanks a lot. Cheerio for now. Thank you very much for listening. One of the parts of the conversation I just wanted to highlight, which was important for me to understand and articulate, was this concept of BMI, overweight, adipose tissue, fatness, what have you, with relation to type 2 diabetes. Now, I do think that BMI can sometimes get a very bad rap amongst the fitness community, the medical community sometimes as well. And... Although it is very useful for population studies and it is a very useful metric, let's be honest, we also realize that it's not the most high definition measurement of somebody's uh, adipose status, i.e. how much fat they're carrying. So I think there's been confusion, particularly for me, about this correlation between body weight obesity diabetes why do some people who don't seem to be obese get diabetes and then in the media and other places a lot of the time the blame seems to be on people who are obese well after speaking with professor lean this concept of individual threshold and individual insulin sensitivity the fact that somebody who externally or via their BMI seems to have a normal weight. Actually, the important thing is where are they storing this adipose tissue? If that adipose tissue is going into the liver, the pancreas, the organs, then they are going to be at a much greater propensity for having something like type 2 diabetes. And that is the explanation which I've been looking for about why does there seem to be this variability amongst body weights and diabetes incidents. So although BMI is not perfect, it's 
a fair external measure that we can use. We can't go around doing an MRI scan on every Tom, Dick and Harry to see what their liver or their pancreas is doing. But as a broad brushstroke, it serves its purpose for sure. So I just wanted to sort of highlight that aspect of the conversation. Now, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. If you have any thoughts, comments or questions, please just send me an email, julian at strongermedicine.com. Also, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a, a review or a comment or a rating or whatever, wherever you listen to this podcast. And as always, if you found it interesting, please share it as well. Thanks very much. And I look forward to catching you at the next episode.